So I think before we get to a place of, you know what, I'm going to remove this person in my from my life, I do think it's important to just have a level of self-reflection to say, well, what have I poured into this relationship in the first place? Because I'm demanding all of this. I'm asking for all of these things, but have I even given those things in return? And maybe that's what's actually missing. Hello, welcome to the Active Ingredient Podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel. And this is your destination for all things growth. Hello, welcome back to another fabulous episode of Active Ingredient. I am so excited to get into this week's episode with one of my absolute favorite truth tellers, creators, mental health educators, and now as of tomorrow, authors. Tomorrow on August 22nd, Mina B, who is the guest of this show, is launching her debut book, Owning Our Struggles, A Path to Healing and Finding Community in a Broken World, that takes people on a journey of collective healing and building supportive networks and how to regulate our nervous systems. So I actually heard Mina speak for the first time ever at an event that my agency put on a few months back. And I was floored. I mean, she like really stopped me in my tracks and it was really, I think the way that she shared the way that she felt she made everyone in the room feel and the way that she just kind of encapsulates all of these different emotions that we all feel in a very digestible way. And I knew immediately as soon as I heard her speak live that I had to have her on this show and share her with all of you. She is just so incredible. She also happens to be one of my favorite follows on Instagram. If you're looking for some nourishing content that is just full of truth. So in this episode, we get into all things perfectionism, redefining healing, our human need to connect, regulating our nervous systems, outgrowing rituals, building our self-trust muscle, and so much more. Thank you, Mina, for coming on and major congrats on this new book. If you guys are looking also for a new read, her book comes out on the 22nd. And with that, Mina, welcome to the show. Mina, thank you so much for coming on the Active Ingredient Podcast. I'm just so excited to dive in on all things healing. So thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. So I met Mina at an event in New York and, you know, like when you meet someone or you just like hear someone speak such truth that you're just like, I I don't understand how this person has tapped into this level of clarity and this just, it feels like this infinite fountain that you have seemed to get into. I'm curious if you feel that way about yourself, like if you feel that it's infinite and that you feel like you can always tap into that or if there are eras in life where you come in and out of it. But that was my experience of you. It was just like, wow, this person has really like clearly tapped into something. Well, one, I want to say thank you. <laughs> um, I mean it. Seeing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will be honest and say that I definitely have seen a lot of growth in my own journey as a human being and especially as an adult, just seeing where I was maybe 10 years ago and 15 years ago when I really started doing this work of healing while also simultaneously training as a mental health professional. And I think that has absolutely helped me on my own personal journey. I will say, however, that you know, in life, we're always 
faced with new challenges, adversity manifests in different ways, especially unprovoked and in ways that we are not ready for at times. And so although I do find that I have seen a lot of growth in my ability to regulate, I've seen a lot of growth in my ability to be self-aware, I've seen a lot of growth in my ability to use discernment, there are times where challenges just come up for me where I'm like, you know what? I'm not sure I know how to face this thing. And my body reacts to it in a way that helps me see I'm not equipped in the moment, you know? And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is maybe I find myself becoming really snappy or impulsive or being angry or being really quick to be annoyed. And my self-awareness has helped me to be able to see Maybe this is an area where I need additional help and support, you know? So I do think there's been a lot of growth over the years, but I'm still learning like everybody else. Yeah, that's really refreshing to hear. And I also, I'm curious your thoughts on perfectionism in healing. And I say this because as you're explaining that there's times where, you know, it just feels like it's coming out of left field and you might fall back into patterns of being or being angry or just reacting and I have found myself many times doing that and then getting frustrated with myself. Like I thought I outgrew that reaction. I thought that like I already got past this way of being in this type of situation. And so what are your thoughts on for someone listening that is maybe like catching themselves in those things and then just being able to be okay with the fact that we're not going to respond perfectly every time? Because I do find that in the healing process, at least for me, it's been a lot of like, being okay with it. And then also like dealing with the perfectionism within healing, like wanting to do it right. But it's like, that's kind of counter. Absolutely. And I think it also isn't an accurate definition of healing. I think that if we're moving through life, believing that we are always going to be equipped to set that boundary, or we're always going to get it right, or we're always going to have an answer. We're always going to feel happy. We're going to know how to set boundaries and we're going to know how to do certain things. I don't think we have an accurate description of what healing is. Healing is very messy. Healing is not linear. Healing happens when you do something that you know represents you acting out of character and being able to say, oh my gosh, I messed up. Mm -hmm. That is healing. You know, and I think for what I would encourage people to own and recognize is that perfection does not have place in healing. Often perfection is just rooted in anxiety. And so if we're trying to be perfect, if we're trying to always get things right, if we feel like there's no room forever, then there possibly is no room for growth as well, because we can't dictate the future. Like I said, there are going to be new experiences that we face that we may not be equipped to deal with. And in those moments, we realize, oh man, this is an area where I still need to learn. Mm -hmm. And that is what healing actually is. So I think we actually really need to be doing the work of redefining how we see healing in the first place. Yeah. I'm curious when you are in those moments and you, like you said, realize that you wanted additional support in certain things. What are those areas of support that you gravitate towards? Well, despite me being a licensed social worker and someone who has practiced as a therapist, I also have a therapist, Mm -hmm. which is extremely important because I'm a human who moves through this world and I need a professional outlet 
where I can share my concerns, my frustrations, and get professional feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, Outside from that, I am also teaching and I'm also a mental health educator. And so I need to ensure that the things that trigger me, the things that manifest for me when I am doing my client work or even my corporate work, I have another healthy professional outlet that I can bring those things to them and say, I need some guidance. I need some wisdom on this. And so that is one of the supportive networks that I have. I also believe in the power of community, hence why I wrote a whole book Mm -hmm. about it, right? (laughs) Um, My book, Owning Our Struggles, really takes people on a journey to own the power of collective healing and what it means to build healthy, supportive networks. And that is because in life, we're wired to be in relationship. We are wired for connection and togetherness. And that plays a huge role in actually healing and repairing our nervous system. So when I find myself feeling dysregulated, when I find my nervous system is reacting and manifesting those different trauma responses where I find myself engaging in fight, flight, or freeze, I can use someone else's nervous system, someone else's guidance, someone else's wisdom to help repair my own. And aside from that, I do believe it's just important for me to be mindful. I'm always asking myself, how do I want to show up today? What makes me feel good? How do I want to contribute to society today? And that helps me to discern what actions I'm going to take so that I can make sure I'm living in alignment with my goals and desires. And I find those are the tools that I've been able to develop for myself that helps me regulate and helps me on my own healing journey. I'm curious for you personally, do those tools that ground and support you change with time? Like, for example, if in a season there's certain things that really help you kind of like set the intention for the day and like know the type of person that you want to show up as, do those grounding tools evolve and change with you as you do? And I'm asking specifically because I feel like within the journey, I found myself and I hear from a lot of people that you can get attached to certain things that may have served for a certain period of time that were super healthy and super like useful for a period. And then it no longer is that thing. So I'm curious what your relationship is to that and what you see in your own practice with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay to outgrow some of our rituals. Mm -hmm. It happened to me. A lot of the things that I used to enjoy doing, for example, I would spend an hour before bed reading a physical book. Then the pandemic hit, and I think when my personal life got very enmeshed with my professional life because I was working from home, and my home is a sacred environment, my home is my place for me, for restoration, for all my activities and work, I physically leave my home to go to work. So when I had to start working in my home environment, I realized, one, I don't have a proper work setting in my home. And I had to start doing things differently that it made me realize, oh man, some of the things I really love doing post-pandemic, I don't like doing it anymore, (laughs) right? And I think it's because for a really long time, those lines were blurred. Now I'm fully self-employed, so I'm I'm absolutely home all day, Yeah, right? Where before I was working a full-time job. Now that I'm home, there are certain things where, because I'm in my house almost all day, especially Monday through Friday, a lot of the things that I used to enjoy, I used to wake up and watch YouTube videos and do Pilates in the house. And now I'm like, if for me to be active, I need to get outside. I used to really enjoy reading books before bed. Now I only want to listen to audiobooks. I don't want to have to physically hold a book in my hand. So 
it's not that those practices are bad. It's just that I'm in a completely different season of my life. And so my needs have evolved and what feels satisfying for me has evolved. And I think that's something that we just have to own with the journey that as we grow and as life throws new curves, curveballs our way, there are going to be different rituals that we engage in because that's what we need in that season. And Mm -hmm. it's okay to embrace that. Yeah. I find that, I mean, I talk about this with people all the time too, that it's like, there's something that really helped. And like, you were like, oh, wow, within that season, like this really, really helped. So you kind of correlate that ritual with that season that you were like, I was in it, I was feeling in flow. And so you still continue to do a ritual, even if you're like, I feel like I'm forcing myself to do this now versus before it felt kind of more like ease. And I think that it's just like a really common thing when going through it, you know, I mean, and still now, like there's certain practices that have like edited for sure, or like shortened or completely just left my sphere. But there's like a a moment and it all goes back to trusting yourself. But like, there's been a moment where I'm like, am I going to lose my practice? Because I'm no longer doing this thing that got me from A to B, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's common. I think that is a healthy response a lot of people probably have. But I think one of the things that we have to do is be willing to embrace change Mm -hmm. and be willing to embrace that as we grow, our desires ebb and flow, you know? And it's okay to let go of certain things, even if they are healthy. It doesn't mean that you are regressing. It doesn't mean that you are engaging in bad habits or developing bad patterns. It just simply means that thing is no longer for you. And you can take some time to find what actually works and what is going to stick over time, whether it's short-term or long-term, because some of us even have practices that it felt really good for a few months and now I'm in a completely different space and I want to try something new. You know, that happened to me recently where I'm a part of a gym called Orange Theory. Some people might be familiar with it, where now I'm in a place where I kind of feel like I've outgrown that gym. You know, it was really fun. Same, same. This is like the exact example I had in my head, but not with Orange Theory. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, it it was a really fun journey being a part of that gym for a whole entire year. But now I'm like, you know what? I want to try Pilates. So I think I want to start a gym where I can do Pilates. Like my body is just craving something different. But you see, it's not like I'm neglecting my health. I'm not neglecting my workout routine because I want to try something new. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just important to realize that even if the thing is healthy, even if the thing feels good for our nervous system and for our mental health, there are so many other things out there that are healthy too. And that's going to help mend our mental health and help repair our well-being. So just be okay with pivoting if you need. Yeah. To. I'm curious your thoughts on how this pertains to relationships, because I think that we also at the same time live in a culture. It's easier to say this about your gym and your exercise routine, but when it comes to the people in your life, specifically people that have been in your life for a long time, I find that both of those things existing at the same time is tricky to navigate. Meaning like, yes, there are so many people that can maybe meet you more at the friendship level that you need right now. But then I think that our culture is also really quick to just like neglect or just completely like let go of people that like maybe still can serve some sort of function in your life and maybe just not as much as they did previously. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on like, what is the line? You know, like what is the line within relationships of like, 
allowing, or if there's a relationship that's healthy, but there's just something in you that's telling you that it's just not meeting you at your full needs at this moment, how to navigate that? Because it's so tricky. And it's like, also like, what is the line of like allowing people the grace and the space to grow and evolve at their own pace? And also knowing that like, whatever's happening at this current moment is not meeting your needs. You know, I think that it it kind of goes back to this idea of honestly meeting people where they are. I think that if you're in a relationship that feels unfulfilling, it feels unsatisfying, it feels like there's no reciprocity, the core foundations of a relationship such as trust, respect, reciprocity, all of those things are not there, they're not present, then I can understand the decision to wanting to pivot and wanting to shift and deciding, well, maybe I do need to exit this friendship or even relationship because it could be a romantic one as well. But at the same time, I think this is why it's important for us to do the work of meeting people where they are and asking ourselves, well, what is the satisfying relationship that I am looking for and who can give me that in this current time and in this current season. I don't think everything means people need to be cut off because they cannot meet you where you want to be met and they can't give you the things that you want. I think that kind of now goes to managing your expectations of people because they are showing you what they can give you. And so you have to decide where they fit in your life. You have to decide how you want to do friendship with that person. And I think that it is totally possible to have meaningful relationships with people who may not be able to give us everything that we're looking for, you know? And so I think that we have to ask ourselves, one, are we setting extreme expectations for every single person we know to meet every single need that we have? I think, too, we also need to just be very mindful of the way friendship falls on the spectrum. Expecting your acquaintance to pretty much be everything to you might not be realistic because you have not gone deep yet. Mm-hmm. You all have not evolved to a level of sacred friend or a close friend. Also, I think it's important to realize that the same way you're seeking connection from someone, that person is most likely also seeking connection from you, but you have to earn it. I think sometimes we get into relationships with people and we're like, well, they're not meeting my needs. They're not meeting my needs. But the question sometimes too is, are you meeting their needs? Because remember, a relationship is a two-way street. So sometimes we can be very eye-focused saying, this is what I want of that person. But we also have to ask ourselves, what am I pouring into this relationship? Because I might be requesting this person to show up for me in a way that I have never showed up for them. Or I might be expecting a level of vulnerability from them, but I've never been vulnerable in this relationship. So it does take a lot of self-awareness for us to also own how we show up in these relationships and friendships, because sometimes we might be asking people to give things to us that we have not even given them. And if there is no reciprocity, if there is no baseline 
for this is how we show up and this is a safe space for me to be able to be this person, it is going to be hard to get your needs met sometimes. So I think before we get to a place of, you know what, I'm going to remove this person in my from my life, I do think it's important to just have a level of self-reflection to say, well, what have I poured into this relationship in the first place? Because I'm demanding all of this. I'm asking for all of these things, but have I even given those things in return? And maybe that's what's actually missing. Hmm. Wow, that's really wise and eye-opening. So thank you so much. I'm curious from an expectation level, what, like it, I feel like it's hard to know what is like out of the realm of like reality or is it delusion to think that like these things are expectations that I would like to have met. And like, I also get stuck sometimes on like, I guess kind of what you were saying, like, where is it that I can fill my own cup in those things or the things that I can like meet the needs, but what's the line of like, no, your partner or your friend actually like their role is to hit like certain, certain things. And then the other things are nice and gravy and add-ons, but like, it's, I, I, I guess like I am struggling and like knowing what is too much of an expectation to have for someone is that now falling into like perfectionist camp where you're like, asking someone to be a superhuman that doesn't exist versus just a person who's like meeting baseline. And then you're kind of like filling the gaps yourself on the things that are not there. Yeah. I mean, I think that everything requires nuance. Yeah. Um, And I think with expectations and desires that a lot of us have in our friendships or even romantic relationships, they really speak to our inner world. Mm-hmm. and the experiences that we've had. And they might even be a window into some of our past relational traumas. I think that it can be really hard to know what is unreasonable because at the end of the day, there are going to be able, there are going to be people who would meet that unreasonable need. And there are going to be some people who will say, that is unreasonable and I cannot do that thing for you. Mm -hmm. So it is very subjective. Every relationship is subjective. No relationship is equal. So there is no blanketed answer to that. But I do think sometimes it's important for us to understand where that expectation is coming from. To give you an example of what I mean by that is I saw a conversation recently happening online where a man expressed to a woman that he did not want to continue pursuing her in dating because he felt that women should not have male best friends and was not appreciative or just didn't feel comfortable with the relationship this woman had with a male best friend. He said, this is where he drew a boundary. And a lot of people got confused and said, that's not a boundary. That's not a boundary. However, a boundary is a limit, right? A boundary is always about what you are willing to engage in and you saying, this is where I draw the line. And so our boundaries, our standards, our expectations, all of those things are very very interconnected. Now, there are some people who might say, you know what? I actually don't think people should be friends of the opposite sex. And that man might actually find a woman who says, you know what, I agree with you and you don't have to be worried because I don't plan to be friends with men because I actually don't believe that either, right? And so you told aren't now aligned. But I also think it's important when we realize that I have certain standards or desires or expectations. 
what are my experiences when it comes to interacting with people? And you might find that I have this high expectation, I have this particular standard, and I find that I can't find anyone to meet that particular need. And we might have to do some digging to understand, well, where does this expectation come from? And it might come from us finding out it's there's an insecurity. Mm-hmm. That insecurity could be in my past. I was actually cheated on. That insecurity could be in my past. I have male best friends who are preying on their female friends. That insecurity could be rooted in so many things. And so basically what I'm saying is sometimes we need to do deeper work around asking ourselves, where does this expectation come from? And if I consistently find myself hitting a roadblock, where in every relationship, People are unwilling to meet this need. People are struggling to meet this need. It is healthy for me to decide, well, maybe I need to investigate why this need is so important to me. But in other situations, you might realize people are willing to meet this need, right? And so I I say this because I think we categorize things in our society into black and white, and we often live in the gray area. Mm -hmm. So when it even comes to having expectations in our friendships, there requires a lot of nuance thinking into what is a healthy expectation? What is a realistic expectation? And is this expectation actually getting you closer to the thing that you want? Or do you find that you are still unsatisfied and unfulfilled because you're still holding on to an expectation that people are showing you they cannot meet? So good. I'm curious on your journey. I'm fascinated by healers. I It's just something that I love and I love to understand the person's journey as to how they found that specific modality to hone in on. And I, I would just love to hear from your background, how you got into this space and what led you to it. So what got me into this space with my own journey with mental health issues, I struggled with depression and anxiety in childhood. It got very severe during my teenage years. And my very first experience talking to someone about my mental health was actually with my guidance counselor in my high school. And although this wasn't a licensed mental health professional, it felt really good to have someone that I could use as a healthy outlet, someone that I could talk about my emotions to, someone who listened intently without judging me, was very compassionate, was empathetic, but also provided me with compassionate feedback on decisions that I should be making or ways that I should be thinking about certain situations. So I found that that was like my first experience being in what felt like a therapeutic relationship, even though, like I said, this person wasn't Mm -hmm. a therapist. And then I went on and I decided that I wanted to study um, social work. I went to undergrad for business school, actually. But my sociologist professor, I went to Briarcliff College for undergrad. Nice. Yeah. So it was out in Bethpage, Long Island. So I was really, really far, very small Mm -hmm. school. Um, And that also was because when I was choosing my undergraduate school, I still was a little unsure what field I wanted to be grounded in. So I said, I'll just go to business school. (laughs) My sociologist professor, however, was a social worker. And I loved her. I loved her class. I loved her teaching style. She would come back to school, back to class and tell us stories about the clients that she was seeing. And I thought, I want to be a social worker. It's because of her that I want to be a social worker. And that was a choice that I made. So for graduate school, I studied at NYU and I decided to take the clinical track of being trained as a therapist. And that's pretty much what got me here. And 
I always knew in grad school that I was not necessarily on the track of going into like private practice, like how most traditional therapists are. I knew I wanted to be an educator. Now I thought, how did you know that? Like, what was it that was coming up for you? So my second year placement, when it was a two-year program, my first year as an intern, I interned at a high school. So I was working with teenagers one-on-one. It was really my second year placement as an intern. I was placed at Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, which is a substance abuse treatment center. They have locations in Manhattan and in other states. But that was actually the experience that helped me realize I want to be a mental health educator. The reason why is because during my internship, Hazelden has a particular approach with how they work with their clients. So their clients get one-on-one therapy weekly, but four days a week for 90 minutes, they also have to do group therapy. And it was in group that I felt like this is such a life-changing experience. And the reason why this was so life-changing for me is because it helped me finally understand what community care looked like. In this setting, these were people who were with each other four days a week for 90 minutes and even more because they had to do other things while they were at the facility. Um, And this was, I believe, like a five to six-month program. And in group, that was a space where people had to be vulnerable People had to bring their shame. People had to talk about the things that were hard. And when I say had to, nobody was forcing you to do anything you didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. But the people there knew that if they wanted to heal, if they wanted to engage in sobriety, if they wanted to turn their lives around, they would have to do the hard thing. And often the hard thing is speaking up and talking about the thing that hurts you speaking up and talking about the relationships that hurt you. Also, speaking up in that group and letting other group members know when they hurt you. So here is a space where you have to engage in conflict management, conflict resolution. You have to learn how to self-regulate. You have to learn how to manage difficult feelings. But most importantly, you also have to learn to communicate in that moment what feels good for you and what does not feel good. And that, to me, was just such a life-changing experience watching people commit to the thing that was hard. But while they did that, they also practiced community care. They were empathetic to each other. They held space for each other. And that really informed my work with being a community care expert on really giving people the skills that they need to heal from trauma through the lens of collective care. I love that I have full body chills. I have so many questions about community care because I do find that in our society right now, we're so lost on what community feels like. There's so much fear around what other people will say. I can speak for my own kind of thought on sharing vulnerably and like sharing the really hard things with people in my community. I've always had this lens of like, I want to figure it out and then I'll share it in hindsight. You know, I want to like go through it individually. And then on the other side, I can, you know, expose myself or expose what I had been going through alone. And it's like from this deep rooted fear that like, 
other people are going to be talking about my stuff behind my back. They're going to be seeing me differently. And I think it's rooted in control of like what I want people to like know of me. And I find that it's like, I hear that from so many people too, that it's like you carry this thing yourself and then you, you really, really seek deep, deep connection, but you can't have one without the other. So what you're, it's like community healing sounds so amazing to me, but the thought of like sitting in a room with other people that like, I don't know who is going to be like talking about it with other people. Like how do people feel safe enough to even open up in community healing settings? Well, in a specific setting, like group therapy, for example, I think that there is a particular subconscious rule that people understand exists when they make a choice to enter that type of engagement. Yeah. When you're making a choice to be a part of a group, you're making even you're making a choice to see a therapist even if it's one-on-one. There is this unconscious rule that you recognize you're engaging with where this is a space that is specifically designed for safety. This is a space that is specifically designed for people to be vulnerable and talk about hard things with the expectation that what happens in this room stays in this room. I also think that people who lead those spaces help cultivate a space of safety for Mm -hmm. individuals. But here's the thing. Everyone is not moving through the world engaging in group therapy, right? Right. Having a community does not mean that your community is a group therapeutic setting. Right. So for me, when I think think about collective healing and community care, again, there are so many nuanced pieces to it. But I think the most important piece is recognizing who in your community do you feel safe with exposing your full truths. And then there are going to be members of your community who have not earned that yet. Right. So I think one of the things that's important for people to remember is that community care does not mean a lack of boundaries. Practicing community care means how am I showing up in my relationships? How am I contributing to the progression of society? How am I creating safe spaces for people? In the same way I am being introspective, I'm going to be monitoring my environment to see who those people are as well. In a friendship, when you meet someone, they don't automatically become your best friend. Mm -hmm. They earn that. That person was a complete stranger to you at some point in life. Then they became an acquaintance. Then they started to transition into what felt like a close friend. And now you probably are engaging in sisterhood with this person where it's like their family. So I think we have to see that progression of those individual relationships and apply that to community. Because remember, people make up community. So when I am Mm -hmm. talking about community, I'm talking about people. The people who exist in these communities. So you can have a group of friends and realize in in this group, I only feel safe talking to person A about my hardships or things I've experienced. But person B, I'm not there with them yet. And that's okay because we're still working together to build a healthy bond and attachment with one another where eventually I might get there. So my boundary is I'm not going to disclose certain things yeah. person B. The things person A knows, person B may not know. And that's still community care. 
because I'm still showing up as myself, but you just have not earned a right to know intricate details about my life. But if we just hang out and go to brunch or if we're uh, bonding over commonalities like are we reading the same book? Are we watching the same TV show? Do you want to go do this activity together? That is still being a part of a community with somebody. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just important for people to remember that when you're practicing community care, you can also still establish boundaries with the members of your community. At what point in this whole life thing did we lose that? Because I feel like it really was so rooted in tribes. And I, I, at that point, I don't know how vulnerable or like what people were sharing with their community, but it feels like somewhere along the way, we just lost it. And right now we're living in a loneliness pandemic. I'm curious your thoughts on like, at what point did we really start losing it to, to this level? And how do we start regaining it in a practical sense? Like maybe I don't know if therapy is like not available to everyone. Like what are small ways that we can start kind of doing that in our day-to-day life to build it for our own realities? I definitely think societal traumas have played a role in the individual traumas that people now act out and causes them to retreat from engaging in community. I think when things happen on a global and societal level, it brings shock into the body. It brings up trauma responses. Responses, And I think that flight response means I'm going to remove myself from people who are dangerous, from people who have ideologies that might be dangerous, or I might remove myself altogether out of fear that if I show up and I allow myself to engage in this community, somebody might hurt me. Right. And so I think all of this is just really self-protective mechanisms that people have put in place as a result of the world consistently being a space that often feels very unsafe and people make up the world. Right. And so when we are dealing with certain injustices, when we're dealing with different levels of oppression, when we're dealing with all of the things that are happening in society, that is a form of trauma it can now, like I shared, cause those responses to manifest and make people want to now just disengage. Hence the loneliness epidemic. I think that um, this has been happening for years now. And we saw with the coronavirus pandemic, that being the onset, right? Mm -hmm. Stay in your homes, lockdowns, and also creating this fear where you should stay away from people. And so you have people moving out of cities because they feel like, the city is too congested. Too many people are everywhere. So I now to now I need to get up and move to this remote, desolate land. And now I'm struggling because nobody is there. I got up and I moved away from my close friends, my close family. And now I'm living in, su- in a, such a secluded area. I'm struggling to build community. Now we also have to add in the work from home orders that have now become permanent for many people. So the camaraderie I used to get at work, or again, just that separation between personal and professional, I no longer have that because everything still feels enmeshed. And there are so many other things that could be happening that has caused a disruption regarding how we see each other and how we now build bonds. I think we need to refigure out What does it look like to build healthy bonds and attachment with people in a world that is consistently traumatic? And so I think for me, you know, therapy is beautiful, but I understand that 
not everyone can afford therapy. And I also don't believe that in order to heal, you have to engage in therapy. It's 2023. There are an abundance of free resources available to people. So relying on therapy as the only healing factor available um, is no longer realistic. And is not something that we should be putting pressure on ourselves to engage in if we know it's not an option. YouTube allows us to watch TED Talks. We can watch TED Talks from thought leaders and mental health professionals who are giving us data and insights on things. Many people have an um, Spotify account or listen to Apple Music. You can listen to podcasts now from experts who are sharing different things, whether it's evidence-based or conversations like what we're having. There are resources on the internet. You can Google documents. You can Google articles. You can even Google journals to read evidence-based research. So there are things that are tangible and available to us if we make the active choice of pursuing those things. And that is often the part of healing that many people struggle to engage in. We live in such a consumer-focused society that I think a lot of people are used to convenience and they're used to quick fixes. You cannot go to CVS and buy a product off the shelf that will help you heal from your trauma. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. (laughs) Right. You cannot go into Walgreens and find a product that is going to teach you on how to be a better community member. That product might be a book that you still have to read and now apply it to your life and make changes. So I think it's just important for people to ask themselves, am I being proactive in the pursuit of change? If I want happiness, if I want healing, if I want my life to be better, what am I doing to contribute to that? And you have to be self-reflective enough to own and say, maybe I'm not doing anything and I just want the outcome without doing the work. Or I need to be more realistic and just accept, come to a level of acceptance that there are certain things I want to engage in that I just don't have the funds to engage in or the resources to engage in it. Mm -hmm. So I need to pivot like what we talked about earlier. I need to pivot. Maybe I need to watch the books and listen to the TED Talks and do all of these different things. I meant earlier, listen to books or read books and watch TED Talks and do all these different things because maybe at this point I can't afford therapy or group therapy, but there are still options available. Do you believe that active healing practices and modalities is something that's a lifelong thing? And I'm asking specifically about, can we get addicted to the healing process and like stay stuck within like, a healing thing where the energy is more like trying to fix versus getting curious and trying to just be and evolve. I absolutely do think that some of us might get to a place where we feel hyper fixated on showing up in the world as perfect, on showing up in the world as this fully healed person until again, some sort of circumstance happens and you realize, oh man, I have a lot of work to do still. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to that unrealistic expectation and definition of what we think healing is. I believe healing is always going to be a lifelong journey because we have a full life ahead of us. So there are, again, because of the future that's ahead of us, there are experiences and things that we may have never dealt with that life tosses our way and we have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. We have to say, how am I bouncing back from this thing? What am I going to do to overcome this thing? So I think it's important to always be in a space 
of wanting to evolve and grow, but we also need to be making room for play, for curiosity, for rest, for being with ourselves, being mindful, engaging with nature, engaging with people. And if you start to become so hyper-focused on healing to the point where you feel miserable, then I think that's a sign that you are actually clinging to perfectionism Mm -hmm. and you're not actually doing the work of healing because healing is not synonymous with addictive behavior, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you are engaging in particular behaviors and patterns that are actually now becoming detrimental, that shows that you have not been on the healing track that you thought you are on. Or maybe at some point you were on it and you took a detour and now you got hyper fixated on it. And now it's bringing you to a completely different place that is not synonymous with the healing journey. So I do just want people to ask themselves, how am I still making room to live, explore, be curious, engage with life around me because that is healing. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about your book, the intention behind the book, why now? And yeah, what your hope is for someone listening or for anyone who grabs a book on what to take away from it. So I started writing my book, um, the proposal for my book, I should say, in the fall of 2020. And I always knew I wanted to write a book on community care, um, but, you know, conceptualizing it took some time and in 2020 hit. And I realized, man, I have a lot of material now <laughs> uh, <laughs> for a book. Focus You're like, and 20 something more chapters, let's out of them. <laughs> exactly. You know, um, for me at that time, Like I said, it was the fall. So we already experienced the loneliness epidemic, the racial injustices, the um, lockdown orders, all of those things have already taken place. And I found that people were struggling to integrate back into society. I think those lockdown orders really did a number on people. This fear of interacting with others did a number. The heightened racial injustices that were taking place around that time, especially during a time where we were forced to be secluded mm-hmm. and segregated from the world while the world was still falling apart, was really difficult for people to manage. And so the concept for my book finally came to fruition, where I realized I wanted to give people the tools that they needed to heal from trauma because the year of 2020 was a traumatic year. Mm-hmm. And so how could we heal from trauma through community care? There's a lot of work out there that exists already on teaching people what trauma is, teaching people how to heal their individual traumas, how to work on your trauma in your bedroom by journaling or mindful breathing, maybe even yoga practices to do somatic therapy and all those things. But I didn't feel like there was work out there that taught people how to use community and relationships as a healing modality to heal from their trauma. And the thing is, when we're dealing with trauma, most of the time we're dealing with the trauma that took place between us and another individual. And so when that rupture happens, right, and that rupture was caused by another person, we still have to figure out how to continue to build healthy relationships. But if you're 
consistently being burned or traumatized by someone, it can be hard to want to build healthy, supportive networks if you think everyone around you is bad. Right. Turning on the news and seeing people who are acting out in ways that are harmful. So I wanted to just write a body of work that allowed people to realize that we don't heal to exist in the vacuum. We heal to integrate into a community. We are biologically wired for connection. We are biologically wired for togetherness, for relationships. So that is a fundamental need that we have, that we have to own and embrace on the healing journey. And so I wrote a book to give people the tools on how to do exactly that, heal in community. What is, and I know that this is a hard question to ask and maybe counter to everything, but I'm just going to ask it in case there's something that comes up. What is a tool or something from the book that you can share with our listeners now of starting to kind of maybe take that first step into integrating or just being in community in a more kind of just whole way? Yeah, well, one, I wrote my book in a way that is very reflective. So every chapter ends with an exercise. However, depending on the concepts I talk about, Mm -hmm. within each chapter, I also included certain breakout sessions that people can use Mm. um, as a way to reflect on the things that they just read. And one of the things that I feel like comes up for me as I think about this question is a somatic practice where I teach people how to be more in tune with their body because I do believe the body is the first responder. Our fight, flight, freeze mechanisms are the first thing that get enacted when we feel trauma, when Mm -hmm. we experience something that is traumatic. And often, if we are not aware of the body, if we are not aware of when our body is dysregulated, it can be hard to move through the world and try to heal if we're not being in tune with the particular parts of our body that is letting us know we are actively frozen. We are actively fleeing. We are in a chronic state of fear. So I walk people through a body practice that they can utilize, um, honestly, anywhere they are, whether it's in their home, whether they're on the go, as a way for them to learn to be more in tune with their nervous system and to learn to be more in tune with the way their nervous system responds when they are facing a stressful situation. Because again, my nervous system, when I'm in a certain environment, my flight activity might become active where your fight mechanism Mm -hmm. might become active, right? So it looks different for everyone. So that is a practice that I think is extremely beneficial that can be used anywhere at any time that is included in the book. So what is it? Like, like you're just like touching your body wherever it's coming up? No. So it's basically like a mindfulness practice where you're pretty much doing something called a body scan and you're paying attention to the different sensations that manifest in your body. You're paying attention to when you feel mood dysregulation, what part of the body tends to ache more. I find for it to use that, to give an example, for me, when I find myself feeling very, very agitated, I notice I feel a lot of tension in my neck area as well as in my shoulders. Right. And so that helps us to recognize the way trauma is stored in the body, but also how is our body helping us recognize something is happening internally to our nervous system where we're feeling dysregulated. When I'm doing that, I can also realize, wow, I'm flustered right now. 
I'm annoyed right now. Why are these sensations coming up for me? So that practice is a step-by-step practice that I have outlined in the book where it's really helping people do that body scan of what are the sensations that you're feeling? What emotions are you feeling as you feel these sensations? What part of your body tends to ache more than other parts of your body? And it's a holistic framework that people can utilize um, to regulate their nervous system. I love it. I love it so much. Are you currently taking patients or clients? Is that something that's still part of your work? It's not actually. So I pivoted in 2021. I started to do corporate wellness work. Mm. However, I still uphold my license. So at any moment in time, I can decide to see clients again. But right now in this season, I decided pivoting is what um, was on my heart. And so now I'm specifically focusing on corporate wellness. I love and writing, that. Of and yeah. Writing. And yeah, you guys following Mina is one of the best things that you will do for yourself this year. I cannot recommend it enough. I'm going to ask you a question I ask every guest, which is what is something that you feel like you have either unlearned or are actively in the practice of unlearning? Like the first, I, I know that there's like a million things that we're constantly unlearning or, you know, deprogramming, but what is something that for you, you feel like is maybe like the main one or one that you would want to share with our audience that could be unlearned or just still in the process? I think what I finally unlearned that I am still owning and learning through time is the fact that we can't control people. And what I mean by that is for a really long time, I found myself being frustrated by unsatisfying relationships because I wanted people to change. And I realized that people have choice. And I have choice as well. And one of the things I have learned on my journey is I get to decide who I want to be in relationship with and I get to decide how I want to show up in my relationships. So I am always unlearning that um, I'm not powerless. I am someone who has the power to make choice and make decisions around the relationships that I want to participate in. I love it. Is there anything else that you would want to share with the audience? And when is your book coming out? My book is coming out August 22nd, and I just want to share that ordering my book is extremely important. Um, It helps with the sales of my book. It helps with libraries and other bookstores, making sure that they have bulk orders of my book. So I just highly encourage people to order, spread the word, and thank you for your support. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was amazing. I feel like I can talk to you for 5 million years and have 8 million questions, but this was so incredible. And like I said, follow Mina. Trust me, it's the best follow you'll do for yourself. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much for getting to the end of the episode. And more importantly, thank yourself for choosing to learn more about how to come home to yourself. As always, take what resonates with you and simply let go of what doesn't. I would really appreciate it if you can give the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen, because that's the way that the show will continue to grow. And we are all about growth here. I'm sending you so much love and I will see you next week.